John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go there and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask anything in my name, and I will do it. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. Let me pray, and then we'll look at this passage together. My name's Phil. I'm one of the ministers here. But let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you for the glorious truth of Easter. We thank you for all that the Lord Jesus achieved in his resurrection. And we pray now that you would open our eyes and stir our hearts, that we might leave here full of joy and confidence and hope. Amen. Do you see the, the BBC poll this week? 23% of people who call themselves Christians in this country don't believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened. That was the headline. Uh, just as striking, actually, was that 9% of people who identify as non-religious in any way say they do believe the biblical account of the resurrection. I mean, how does that even work? So I think something funny was going on in the way they asked the questions. As ever, the stats are not quite as straightforward as the headlines. But it does raise the question, does it matter? Does it really matter whether Jesus Christ rose bodily to a new physical life after having died at a particular time in history in a particular place in the Middle East? I mean, it would be a whole lot easier if you call yourself a rational, scientifically minded, thoughtful person, it would be a whole lot easier to accept Christianity if you didn't have to swallow the whole resurrection thing, wouldn't it? But actually, if you lose the resurrection, you lose everything. Christians, right from the start, the very earliest records we have of Christianity, they proclaim Jesus Christ as risen from the dead. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, hopeless, vain, pointless, a waste of time. 
the whole of Christianity stands on the resurrection. Now, John 14 might seem an odd passage for us to to turn to. If you were listening as you read it uh, and you know anything about the Bible, you may have noticed, hang on, that's a reading from the night before Jesus died. It's Easter Sunday. Aren't we kind of meant to look at stuff that happened after he rose again? Isn't that the whole point of Easter? But in this passage, Jesus teaches us what the resurrection will achieve. He teaches us what things are built on top of his resurrection. Because uh, when Jesus came back to life, he didn't just sort of bust out the grave. Ta-da! I told you I could come back to life again. So, uh, yeah, there it is. <laughs> well, I can't die. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'll be back in a while. You know, he, it's, he comes back to life. And although the focus, the, the high point, the apex of his mission is his death on the cross and his resurrection, he's not doing nothing now. If you like, his death on the cross and his resurrection opened a great storehouse of heavenly blessings. And now he is handing them out. We had a great kid slot this morning to make exactly this point. Here are a whole heap of things that the Bible says we get because Jesus is alive. And they're built on it. And Jesus at the moment, is he's cashing out the promises that he made. He's giving us forgiveness, new birth, new creation. He's spreading the gospel. He's forgiving sins. He's defeated death. All these things he's sharing out. He's given us the Holy Spirit. But all of it falls if Jesus didn't rise. So it really matters. It really matters. Now, we're diving into John's gospel for a few weeks, as I said, at a critical juncture, at Thursday evening of what uh, Christians call Holy Week. Jesus is about to be arrested, tried, and executed. And the shadow of the cross, if you like, falls heavily across these chapters. Darkness is closing in. And so John talks about night has fallen. Uh, Jesus has just cleansed the disciples figuratively by uh, washing their feet. An extraordinary act of humble service. God washing the feet of people who desert him. And he's cleansed them literally by sending out Judas, who has gone to betray him. And now he turns to a new focus. In this, uh, in this last section of the center of John's gospel, 14 to 18, he turns to prepare the disciples for his departure. Not so much his departure to the cross to die, but his departure sort of after the cross, back to heaven. Because after his death, he'll rise again, but he won't stay around on earth. Jesus isn't on earth right now. You can't travel and look for him. He's gone back to heaven. And there are three things he teaches the disciples and us to help us be ready for how we should live and what we should expect in the time after Jesus is gone. And in particular, he's telling us three great blessings that will be ours because he has risen and he has gone back to the Father. So firstly, Jesus is the way to life with God the Father. Verses 1 to 6. Verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, that is frankly extraordinary. In a few hours, he's going to be arrested, beaten, and tortured to death. And yet his concern is that they are troubled. And his concern is to provide comfort to them. He is about to have the full, undiluted wrath of God, the just punishment for the sins of the world, funneled down onto his head. And his concern is that their hearts might be a bit troubled because he's just told them he's leaving. 
extraordinary. They're troubled. Verse, um, if you look back into the previous chapter, because verse 33, he says, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. Or verse 38. Um, uh, or sorry, verse 37. He tells Peter, you, you can't follow where I'm going now. You will later, but you can't at the moment. So the question, if you're a disciple, is you've had God in human flesh with you, teaching, healing, providing, leading for three years. What on earth could be the comfort if he says, right, I'm gone? Well, it starts to appear in, uh, in 1 verse B. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, in the New Testament, you never, ever, ever get the word for believe, pistuo, plus the preposition in, except for believe in God. He is saying, in the same way you believe in God, believe in me. I am God. More of that in the second section. He's saying, don't worry. You can trust me. I can look after you, for I am God. And the substance then of the comfort comes in verses 2 to 6. We'll start with 2 to 3. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I not have told you? Would I have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. The comfort of his leaving is that he leaves with a purpose. He's not going to desert the disciples. It's not like uh, I had a friend at university who was, it turned out later, was from um, quite a high-class background. But uh, once we arrived in London, he kind of ditched all his old friends because he moved in very different circles. It's not like that with Jesus. When he comes back to life, you know what? I'm done with my time mixing around with humans, thank you. No, he is going back to his father's house in heaven to prepare a place to welcome you and me. Now, we've built some amazing buildings in, on this planet. The Burj Khalifa in Dubai, do you know how long that took to build? Six years. The Colosseum in Rome, ten years. The Taj Mahal took 20 years. St. Peter's Rome took 144 years to build. It's amazing what humans can build if you give us enough time. Jesus is God. At the beginning of time, God spoke a word and the entire cosmos came to being. Can you imagine the grand design that Jesus is working on at the moment? He's got 2,000 years so far. Who knows how much longer to finish it. It's going to be some home that he's making for you and for me. And there will be room for us. That's the stress here. He says, look, I'm going to make sure that there is room for each and every one of you. No one will trust in Jesus, get to heaven and find, I'm sorry, it's full. It's what happened to Jesus, to God when he came to earth. But it won't happen to any human when we go to his house. I remember um, just after I started work in London, uh, being invited by a friend to go and play in a cricket match in his village out in the, in the countryside, which sounded like a nice thing to do for a weekend. He said, um, me and a, another guy that we all worked together, he said we could crash at his parents' place. That's great. So um, packed up my carry mat and my sleeping bag, as he did, and, uh, and travel pillow, and, and we got there. My mate drove, and we, and we got out there. And we got to the village and thought, ooh. These look like nice houses. I don't think we'll need a carry mat. These look like kind of plush carpets sort of a place. I think crashing on the floor in one of these houses is going to be rather nice. And then we looked again at the address, and we realized, ah, the name of his house is the same as the name of the village. And then we pulled into the drive and carried on for about a mile and a half before we got to the house. 
And then we saw the 300-year-old house. And I genuinely got lost going from my room back to uh, the, the Great Hall. They had this, the, I kid you not, this place was so spectacular that it had a, an engineer from one of the Bond movies um, build a mechanical, um, basically an invisible mechanical door in one of the walls, because grade one listed, so obviously they couldn't do anything, so that it was easier to go from the kitchen out into the, uh, into the, the terraces for champagne on a Sunday morning. Now, not many of us like the idea of living with our parents for the rest of our lives, but when God says you'll come and live in my father's house. When Jesus says, come and live in my father's house, it's going to be a nice, nice house. I don't know where the nicest place you stayed is. This is the nicest place I've ever stayed. Thing is, I've never been back to stay there since. I've never been back because my only access was through him. And then he went to work for a different firm. And, and so I haven't really seen him much since then. The thing is, if you put your trust in Jesus then you share in the son's access to the father's house. And his house will be spectacular, stunning, beautiful. And what's more is when you arrive, you will find there's no need for sleeping bags in God's house and that there is a room with your name on it. A wonderful place forever living with God. And then Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Good old Thomas. If you want someone to take things literally, he's your man. Jesus talks the way to heaven, and Thomas has got out his postcode, his Google Maps. He's saying, what's the, what's the postcode? Uh, uh, just so I can know, you know how far it will be, whether I should take an Uber or walk. No, Thomas, you've misunderstood me, Jesus says. Actually, Thomas is treating Jesus' words as if Jesus is speaking like every other religion in the world. You see, every religion, every worldview, every ideology in the world has an idea of paradise and a way to get there. It's how worldviews work. Communism, the, the paradise, is a, a utopia where there is no rich and no poor, where there is employment for everybody, but there's no class. How do you get there? Revolution is usually the way in communism. For most of us in London, the idea of paradise, for most of us secular Londonites, the, the idea of paradise is owning a beautiful home within commuter reach of London, a satisfying sex life, and a family to, to give life a sort of grounded meaning. And the way to get there, well, it's flogging your guts out in a, in a career so that you can afford those things. And then the major religions of the world, for all the differences, uh, they've got a, a paradise, a nirvana, a heaven. And the way there is a moral achievement, self-discipline, denying your desires. And instinctively, like Thomas, we think, okay, when Jesus tells us there's a way to heaven, uh, I, need to, I need to go, I need to walk, I need to struggle, I need to strive. You know, paradise, okay, I get that, that's heaven, the new creation. We were looking at that a few weeks ago. And the way to get there is, well, uh, I should love other people, uh, I should read my Bible, I should come to church, I should tell other people about Jesus, I should give my money to the poor. Uh, th those are the sort of things I should do. But Jesus' answer in the next verse shows that is 100% wrong. Christianity is radically different to the way we humans naturally think. And actually, there is a wonderful surprise in this next verse. John 14, 6. 
Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you know Jesus, you know the way to a perfect relationship with God. The way to paradise, because Jesus himself is the way. He is the, the entry ticket. How can a person be the way? That just doesn't make sense. Because he lived the life you and I failed to live. And he went to the cross to pay for our sins, dying the death we deserve. And that's what makes him unique. Christianity doesn't say, here is what you must do to be right with God and then give you a list of commandments. It says, trust in Jesus who has done everything to make you right with God. And then it shows you not a list of commandments, but the nail marks on his hands and his feet with which he paid for our sins. Jesus doesn't say to Thomas, I will show you the way. He says, I am the way. He's also the truth and the life, which really relates to him being the way. The disciples' earnest longing is for God. They want to know God. God who is the source of all that's worth having and being. And Jesus is saying, look, everything you look for, everything you want, it is me. I am the the way to forgiveness and therefore a relationship with God. I am the truth about God. Everything you can know about God is known in me, Jesus says. And I am the eternal life that only God can give. That's what Jesus says. I love this quote from Thomas Akempis. I think it's on your sheets. He expands John 14, 6 this way. Follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life the straightest way, the sovereign truth. Life true, life blessed, life uncreated. See, there's all the difference in the world between being given a map and an airline ticket to get somewhere. All the difference in the world. How do I get there? If you give me a map, I need to walk. I need to work it out. If you give me an airline ticket, all I've got to do is trust the pilot. And he will get me there. In Jesus Christ, we're given the ticket, not the map. He paid the price for our sin. And he lived the life that we fail to live. So that we might be made right, worthy, deserving of God's paradise. And if we trust him, he will bring us safely there too. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life. But then he, well, to our eyes, he ruins things by saying something a little bit offensive afterwards. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ouch. It's a bit offensive to other religions, isn't it? Actually, Jesus' equal opportunity is offensive. It's offensive to everybody. Everybody. And actually, isn't that offensive is the wrong question to ask sometimes. Sometimes the question to ask is, is it true? See, if a doctor says to me, look, your diet and your lifestyle are shocking 
and you are going to die in the next 10 years unless you change things fast. Now, here is a list of things you've got to stop eating and stop doing and stop smoking. And here is a list of exercises you've got to start taking. Or if your boss comes up and says, you are failing and you are on the short list for redundancy because you are simply not performing. Your work is absolutely shoddy. It's disgraceful, to be honest. Here's what I want you to do. You're going to meet with me twice a week for mentoring. I'm going to review all your work. And here is what you need to do if you're going to shape up and make it through the next review. Now, at that point, even the greatest snowflake millennial needs to recognize whether that's offensive does not matter. What matters is, is it true? And if it's true, it's actually kind for the doctor, the boss, to say, you're in real trouble, and here's the solution. And that's what Jesus does. He doesn't claim to be the only way to God because he is a sort of crass, offensive man speaking from a primitive, narrow-minded culture. No, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me because it's true. And because he does not want you to miss out on the relationship with God that only he can provide. Look, the truth is, if you come to Jesus looking for a religion to admire and teachings that will fit a sophisticated 21st century kind of mindset, then you'll find his claims are gauche and what he says is offensive and scandalous. But if you come as a desperate sinner and you're aware that you are not right with God and it will not go well on judgment day, If you come as a frail mortal aware that you live under the shadow of death and there is nothing you can do about it, then when the man who rose from the dead says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, it's the most wonderful news of all. How wonderful. Jesus is the way to life with God the Father. Okay, more briefly. Jesus is the revelation of God the Father, the revelation of God the Father. Now, we get into pretty deep stuff in verses 7 to 11, but do you really expect the truth about God to be childishly simple? Verse 7, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. There have been hints of Trinity ever since the very first chapter of the Bible when God says, let us make mankind in our image. But now things get explicit. And we're not told everything about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we are told two things, and they're extraordinary. And we'll actually go backwards. In verses 10 to 11, do you see, Jesus tells us that he is in God the Father, and God the Father is in him. Now, what on earth does that mean? It sounds like New Age nonsense. But what it means is that the Father and the Son and as we'll see in chapter 16, the Spirit, are so perfectly united 
that there are not three gods in Christianity, but one God in three persons of perfect unity. Uh, The theologian Kostenberger says this language of, as we call it, mutual indwelling describes their unity, but does not obliterate their uniqueness. And the grounds for this extraordinary claim that Jesus and the the Father, uh, that they live in one another, come in verse 9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Or verse 7, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Jesus Christ perfectly reveals God the Father. That's why Jesus says, I am the truth. It's the central claim of John's gospel that the great eternal God came down to us. It is the most mind-boggling event of all history that the enormous God, the eternal God, the uncreated God somehow shrunk himself into a flesh and bones and blood human body. And he did it without changing his nature. So when we learn about Jesus, when we come to know Jesus through the pages of Scripture, we are learning the truth about the God of the Old Testament, God the Father. Now, of course, there is far, far, far more to know of God than we can know just now. There is far, far more to know of God than our finite minds will ever know in eternity. But none of the things that you and I learn in eternity about God will be different from what we know of God now through Jesus Christ. So it won't be like GCSEs versus A-level physics. I went to a, I quite enjoyed physics at school. Um, I thought I was quite good at it up until GCSE. So I went along when um, uh, somebody here was, uh, had their inaugural lecture as a uh, professor of physics at Imperial University. So I thought, oh, I'll go along. Um, and his field happened to be um, something of interest to my dad, so I took my dad along. And uh, it was fascinating, apparently, I understood, I think, one and a half percent of it, which was when he said, hello, my name is Dave, uh, and a very warm welcome to the lecture. And from that moment on, he lost me. And (laughs) one of the things he pointed out was that, yeah, a lot of the stuff you learned at school, it's not quite like that. As soon as you learn advanced physics, you realize that an awful lot of the stuff you learn to start with as a a junior schoolboy, it's, yeah, yeah, it doesn't quite work like that. It's not like that with God, that there's a sort of GCSE knowledge of him we have through Jesus. But when we encounter the real God, it's all quite different and bigger and more complicated. It's much more like the meal that most of us enjoy today. Mm, you can remember that, can't you? you know, it's the difference between the, the smell of the meal when you, uh, oh, yes, it's ready. Oh, what time is it coming out of the oven? Soon, please tell me soon. Uh, that smell, and then when you get to eat it. You can tell it's the same meal. You can tell it's the same food because the smell then gives, gives way to the taste. But it's just deeper and richer and better. And all the things that we know about God through Jesus Christ now, oh, we'll just know them more deeply and richly as taste to smell when we know God in eternity. And that's why Easter is so very precious. Because at the heart of Easter, we are learning what, God is like. If Jesus perfectly reveals the Father and Jesus says, the the heart of what I've come to do is Easter, then at Easter we are learning what God is like. Do you want to know what God is like at his very heart? It is the self-sacrificial love of dying on a cross to pay for the sins of wicked, foul, undeserving people like me and like you. 
If you want to know what God is like, it is unimaginable death-busting power exercised to rescue and save frail sinners who deserve to die for all eternity in hell. That's what's so wonderful about Easter. That the Jesus who perfectly reveals God at Easter reveals God to be a God of love like you cannot imagine. Jesus is the revelation of God the Father. And lastly and most briefly, Jesus is our advocate before God the Father. Verses 12 to 14. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. What are we to make of that? Uh, If you've got questions about the, um, does this mean any prayer will be answered, uh, download the the talk on 1 John 5, the final talk on 1 John 5. We dealt with that a few weeks ago. Uh, But let's just concentrate on on the positive of what Jesus is saying. He's saying he's going back to heaven to stand before God the Father, pleading, presenting our prayers to God the Father, saying, listen to, to this, your child. And because of this, we can be sure we will do even greater things than Jesus. What? Really? I mean, what? (laughs) That's just ridiculous. Okay, what does he mean? Uh, Let's start with what he can't mean. He cannot mean more spectacular or more supernatural. He, he spoke to a rotting corpse called Lazarus that had been in the grave for three days and was stinking, and he came back to life. He fed 5,000 men, and goodness knows how many women and children, with five loaves and two small fishes. He walked on water and calmed storms and turned water into wine. We don't, you can't out-spectacular Jesus when it comes to miracles. And after a hideous public execution, he is about to burst triumphant from the grave. You can't out-supernatural the man who rises from the dead. So what does he mean? I think the most sensible thing is that there is a, there is a difference between what Jesus has been doing up until this point and what the apostles will then do and the church will then do after Jesus' ascension. You see, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he still died 60 years later or whatever. When Jesus fed the 5,000, they still got hungry the next day. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, after Jesus' return to heaven, the apostles and you and I, we get to proclaim the message of salvation. And when we tell people the truth about Jesus Christ and they put their trust in him, They receive eternal life that lasts forever. When we introduce people to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, they know the thing that will satisfy them for all eternity at the core of their soul so they'll never hunger again. We get to the greater things because the the works Jesus did, the miracles during his earthly ministry were just signs to point to the great thing, which is that he would defeat death and he would bring new life in a relationship with God. And we get to share that out with the world. Every time someone becomes a Christian, a greater thing happens than when Lazarus came back to life and walked out of the tomb. Every time someone becomes a Christian, a greater thing happens than when Lazarus 
stopped rotting, was reconstituted and came out of the tomb. That's why Jesus says you'll do greater things. And this is why the, re the resurrection matters. And not just the idea of resurrection, but the historical resurrection. See, Christianity is an extraordinary decision to take to tie yourself to a blood and dust event, a historical happening, and one that's so hard to believe. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from dead in the grave to new physical life and to hang everything on it. But if it is true, then Jesus is the way to God and the revelation of God and our advocate before God. And if it's not true, to be honest, the whole thing is a waste of time. Now, I've been uh, preaching to the choir tonight, and before I turn to, uh, to those who wouldn't yet call themselves convinced about these things, let me just give some implications for the choir. How should we love and live and think differently as a result of this? The first thing is be free. Be free. See, our tendency is we live either as guilty or proud. Guilty when I'm, I'm messing up and I know I'm in trouble with God, and proud when I'm doing well. And I'm making a good fist to the Christian life and, you know, I'm holding it together. But Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we're free from performance Christianity. We're free to enjoy a relationship with God, knowing that your very worst failure, and here's news, hope, God is not ignorant of it. He knows, even if nobody else does. Your very, very worst failure can't disqualify you because Jesus paid for it on the cross. But your proudest achievement can't qualify you because it's nothing like enough. Instead, you're free. You're free because Jesus has done everything you need. Live free. Live confidently. Live confidently. What do I mean? I mean, look, what is the worst that can happen? So I'm a, my wife would call me a pessimist. I prefer the term a realist. Uh, and so I, I quite like to think, what is the very worst that can happen in this scenario? You know, it's, I just find it helpful. It just, I must be fun to be around. Um, I'm not like all the time, you know, <laughs> not saying, you know, every moment of the day. Well, you know, a meteorite. Um, but, you know, I quite like knowing, you know, what is the very worst that can happen? But look, if Jesus rose from the dead, what is the worst that can happen to you if you trust in him? You are eternally secure. And nothing can take that away. You share in the unbreakable life of the man who bust out of the grave and never died. So don't live like, gosh, I could lose everything that matters. Because you can't. And lastly, proclaim boldly. Live free, live confident, and proclaim boldly. We were reminded this morning that... Um, <laughs> Some people are saying we may be closer now to nuclear war than we ever have been if, new, if North Korea really is as capable as people are saying. And we know that the threat of lone wolf terrorism is higher than it's ever been. And, and, and the security that people have been used to in the West has rather shaken. And people need hope. Now, hope in this world tends to mean uh, certainty of time, uncertainty of events. 
I hope it'll be nice tomorrow. I know tomorrow will happen, and I'm not sure what will happen tomorrow. But we can proclaim something much better, which is biblical hope, which is certainty of event, but uncertainty of time. I know that if you trust in Jesus, he'll take you home forever. I don't know which day it'll happen, but I know it'll happen. We have a hope to proclaim and a world that needs it. So let's proclaim it boldly. So much for the choir. Let me close with uh, those who, uh, who wouldn't yet call yourselves part of the choir. And I just encourage you to look into it properly, to weigh the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've not given you the evidence tonight, and I'm not going to insult you by pretending that in 30 seconds I can now do it. But here's the thing. Um, I've had countless conversations with atheists who've told me there's just not enough evidence. But when I've ever given them a book heavier than an airport novel to look into, they just don't bother reading it. Now, I know that these people do exist, but I have yet to meet in my ministry the person who looks seriously into Christianity and at the end says there is just not enough evidence. Lots of people have looked into Christianity and said, I'm not interested, I don't want to make the changes. But I've yet to meet the person who has looked seriously into the evidence and said there's just not enough evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I dare you to look properly into it. I dare you to do it. There's... um. A movie just come out in 2017. Uh, two big surprises about it. One, it's a Christian movie that apparently is all right. Um, it, gets, it gets 78% positive um, ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and it's called The Case for Christ movie. The second surprise in it is what the story is about, which is uh, it's the, the story of uh, Lee Strobel, who was uh, an award-winning um, investigative journalist in Chicago in the early 1970s. And his wife became a Christian, so he set out to disprove the resurrection to kill her annoying faith. And the more he dug into it, the more he applied his journalistic investigative skills, the more he found it was true. And at the end, uh, he, he ended up writing a very different book. It's called The Case for Christ, um, in which he, he sets out the evidence that convinced him of the resurrection. Now, not everybody will find what he found convincing, convincing. But I dare you. I dare you to look into the greatest event in history and find out properly whether it's true. And you'll find that the Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life is still alive today and is still bringing eternal life and forgiveness to all who will trust in him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we don't... uh, worship a dead idea, a wonderful teacher from long ago, but a risen saviour who is here with us today by his spirit, bringing forgiveness and new life. Help us, Father, to live as people who know that we're free of having to earn our way to heaven, to live as people who are confident of the eternal future that Jesus' resurrection has won, and to live as people who know that we have a wonderful message of forgiveness and new life to proclaim to the world. Amen.